Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello everyone, nice to, uh, to have you with us on this lunchtime webinar with the Wessex LMC's Rolling Educational Programme. I'm one of the GPs who supports that and I'm coming to you this morning from my surgery, I've just finished and um, it's my absolute pleasure to have organised this lunchtime event today. Um, we are delighted to invite Mr Sanjay Sharma along to speak to us today. He is, for those of you who don't know him already, he's one of the consultants in MaxVac surgery at Southampton General and the Royal Hampshire County Hospital in, in Winchester. Has many areas of expertise and um, special interests, but please rest assured that this is going to be a talk that is geared towards the primary care generalist who would just like some support and uh, some advice regarding tiger country that is above the clavicle. So uh, some of you have been kind enough to send in questions and um, I'll be very delighted to put them to Mr Sharma if you would like to um, pop up and start his video please. Thank you very much for joining us today. I've been explaining to our delegates a little bit about who you are and, and what kind of things you get up to. Um, and would you like to give us a very brief overview of what it is that you do down there at the General? And then we can start. So, with <laughs> so I'm in the Department of Ornamentalofacial Surgery. I spend uh, probably about 50% of my time um, operating on cases for head and neck cancer. I sort of lead on the reconstructive service. So I'm usually having to steal a bit of arm or leg or back or whatever we need to reconstruct a um, uh, sort of resection defect which may involve the um, neck or jaws, mouth, tongue, orbit and we also carry out a wide range of uh, craniofacial resections jointly with the neurosurgical colleagues so a lot of it I think 50% of my work is probably head and neck major reconstructive surgery uh, multi-team cases and then um, about 30 percent is skin cancer and malignant melanoma so we run the sentinel lymph node biopsy service and uh, um, sort of facial plastic reconstructive service and then about 10 percent trauma with southampton being a major um, sort of level one trauma center and um and then about sort of um, a small mishmash of oral medicine facial pain, uh, facial palsy, um, and the list goes on, it's sort of a bit... Uh, could, I, could I ask you something that has been, been asked here? So um, the question is, we all know about non-healing ulcers and the two-week weight pathway, but what about these people who come in with just recurrent troublesome ulceration in the mouth that is painful? And comes and goes and we're not worried it's necessarily cancerous how, how can we best help these people um they are they're broadly speaking split into two groups there'll be the younger group of patients who have had a long history of recurrent aphthous ulceration in groups and crops you know your commoner garden stuff and they've all been out to buy Angela for it. Um, that group of patients who are otherwise sort of hematemics, uh, which I think are fairly historical um, in origin, I hardly ever see any abnormal results in 
terms of anemia. By the time you have oral changes and glossitis, enough of that to happen to cause that kind of atrophic glossitis. And hello? Yeah, that group of patients, I probably ferritin, um, which again, unlikely for those to come back as abnormal. Things I have seen come back are positive TTG and patients have gone on to be diagnosed as um, celiac um, on duodenal biopsy. So I've definitely seen that as a primary presentation, um, several patients every year probably, so it's probably worthwhile including a TTG in that basic screen. In terms of their um, treatment, I suppose there's a small group of patients who may present with recurrent oral ulceration who are actually vesicular bullous disorder. Usually they would have some other sort of mucous membrane issues as well. But, um, and they certainly require, do require a biopsy. Um, the other group are the, uh, the group of patients who have polypharmacy, they're elderly, there's multiple comorbidities, and they can be quite difficult and refractory to treat the alteration. Okay, so very quickly, two groups of patients. Um, this will cover 95% of all oral alteration. There'll be a few patients with odd vesicular bullous disorder, which usually have other symptoms, um, and uh, they obviously need biopsy for immunofluorescence. But there's the very young group, recurrent abscess alteration. Um, usually it's full blood count, um, ferritin, folate, B12, all the stuff you normally do. The only bit I would add would be uh, TTG. We've had an increasing number of young, fit and well patients whose primary presentation has actually been uh, recurrent oral ulceration and they've gone on to have positive uh, duodenal biopsies. And then there's the other group of more el usually elderly patients who present with chronic non-healing ulcers. They're usually major abscess ulcers rather than minor and um, um, they, they hang around for weeks and it's usually due to their underlying co uh, multiple comorbidities. They do need a biopsy. It's absolutely impossible for anyone clinically to distinguish between those and uh, carcinoma. So I'm afraid that, that group probably do just need a biopsy and then um, uh, we can sort of monitor them um, on a hospital basis for a while actually and sometimes I've had a few cases where I have actually had to excise a refractory ulcer and then inject it with steroids and sometimes that seems to work but it is something that affects their quality of life severely. Thank you. And uh, the question there from Pooja. Thank you, Pooja. How long can we wait before referring for a biopsy? That's the question. Or would this be a two-week wait job, one of these so, people? Yeah. So I think the recurrent abscess ulcers in that young, fit and well patient, they, um, they, they don't really need a two-week wait referral. They can go on routine. But the other patients, the elderly ones with the refractory ulcers, because of the inability to distinguish between the two, I think 
they warrant a uh, fast track referral and it would be a good appropriate use of the pathway. Thank you. So that answers your question, Pooja. Thank you very much. Um, right, Elsa, so okay, ne next question I'll send here. Um, what's the deal with bisphosphonates, please? Right, yes, yeah, so this, this debate has been running for quite a while. I think it affects the bis. So this is osteonecrosis of the jaws. Um, it, um, the absolute risk in patients who have osteoporosis and are on a bisphosphonate is tiny. It's 0.04%. It's absolutely minuscule. So that group of patients actually Mm, there's probably a high level of anxiety and I think even if they have to undergo a dental alveolar procedure such as tooth extraction they don't need to come into hospital there's nothing we would do differently to anybody else it's a group of patients who have metastatic dis um, coexisting metastatic disease and on the intra uh, intravenous bisphosphonates uh, uh, the newer, the newer bone-nibilizing agents as well, they're the ones who are more likely to develop, um, it's now called medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaws. Um, so with those patients, they probably do need to have a uh, regular dental checkup in the community with their um, general dental practitioner and to maintain scrupulous hygiene, fluoride mouthwashes, they just get given everything to try and prevent an extraction because even in, in normal circumstances, if somebody had a bit of a duff tooth and they would just have it extracted and that would be the end of the matter. But in this group of vulnerable patients, the GDP should actually just be temporizing everything and kicking this can down the road for as long as possible because it is extremely hard to treat even when they stop their um, their bisphosphonate um, it can just still be progressive and usually they have to stop it for many um, through many months about six to twelve months at times just to try and get stabilization of the um, process Okay, thank you. So as far as you're concerned, I'm, I'm hearing the take-home message is don't worry too much about patients who are on bisphosphonates for primary or secondary osteoporosis prevention and just to consider carefully the ones that have significant other disease. Yeah, and it's... And patients' disease, classically melanoma and uh, myeloma and breast cancer are the big ones that we would see. Okay, thank you. We still lost your sound a little bit there um, for a second. Uh, I don't Sorry. know if it would be easier if you turned your, your video off potentially. But, um, let's have a, have a look. Does anyone else have anything to add to the chat, or shall we move on to the next the next question that we were sent in? Um, Okay, uh, patients with a dry mouth where it's not obvious from the medications what might be causing it. Uh, I've certainly had a few of these, so I was grateful to see this question come in, where they'll say it's, it's absolutely intolerable and uh, artificial saliva does nothing. Can you help us with patients like that? 
Um, no, <laughs> they are they are very difficult. I think it's important to exclude a diagnosis of Sjogren's in these patients. So um, where there's no identifiable or reversible medical cause, medication cause, then these patients would be referred in. They would have uh, antibody tests, but I think the gold standard is still a labial gland biopsy, quick, easy and simple procedure to perform under local anaesthetic and that would be the definitive um, um, sort of marker for uh, for Sjogren's and then they go on to sort of monitoring for um, malt lymphoma which they have a propensity to develop. Um, again for that group of patients and also for our radiotherapy patients, head and neck radiotherapy patients um, who have dry mouth, uh, the xerostomy is very troubling. And over many years, I've had patients try absolutely everything. And then they always just turn up with a small bottle of water and take frequent sips. There really is nothing magic. You know, the patients have done all the research. You know, thousands of patients have done all of the research for me and tried absolutely everything. And nobody, you know, there'll be one or two who who swear by glandosane or biotin or, or sort of one of the commercially available saliva substitutes. But um, nearly everyone just has a small bottle of water with them. So we'll so. <laughs> they do they are at uh, risk in severe xerostomia because they lack all all of those epidermal growth factors within saliva they are the ones that end up with atrophic glossitis and um uh with um uh, sort of dental caries so again it is important for them to be um registered with a general dental practitioner who will sort of take an interest in that aspect. Okay, thank you very much. Everybody do jump in if you've got another question that you would like me to put to uh, our expert here, otherwise I'll just keep going through the, the list. That, that's very reassuring um, about the dry mouth uh, because it's, it's, it's a very frequent presentation, I, I certainly find. And uh, my heart always sinks when I go through the meds and think there's nothing there that I can really change. Um, yes, this, this one has come in as well. Uh, clicky jaws. Do you want to see all of them? These patients, I would say, again, 95% of them could be split into two groups. There's the young group, younger group with clicky jaws where, um, if I just explain why they get the click in the first place. So in the temporomandibular joint, which is a very odd joint, it has an upper joint space and a lower joint space. And then it has a fibrous meniscus in between the head of the mandibular condyle and the base of the skull. So it's sort of sitting in between and that disc is where it is because of the balance of the, of the muscle pull, a few fibers of lateral pterygoid insert into the front and the strength of the retaining ligaments at the back. So 
classically in patients with um, parafunctional habitus such as clenching or bruxism there'll be an inc constant increase in that activity i would say to patients in of actual time your teeth are in contact every 24 hours is only about seven minutes in normal physiology so you can imagine if you're a clencher or or uh, prone to bruxism you're just off the scale in terms of uh, percentage point increase of sort of moving that disc or the muscle pull constantly pulling it forwards and as that meniscus gets dragged forwards it has a, um, a thicker posterior band and the clicking is the head of the jawbone the condylar head clicking over the back edge of that disc now if they're still able to um uh, sort of achieve a normal mandibular opening then would still class that as a reducible disc displacement. As the process continues, the disc will be pushed, pulled further and further forwards. And at some point, the clicking will sort of, usually the clicking will stop, and then the patient will be able to open like a hinge, but then it impinges onto the disc and the disc all sort of crinkles up and gets in the way. The jawbone again is a bit unique it's a u-shaped bone so you cannot move one joint without moving the other so that's when you can actually look for, for deviation of the jaw um, because that's the only way that the patient can actually get to open their jaw fully is by deviating or having a bigger excursion on the contralateral side to compensate for the poor excursion where that disc has been pulled forwards and is now sort of getting in the way. So that young group of patients, we almost always um, treat with a soft bite raising appliance. They usually need to have a chat just to make sure everything's okay. We sometimes get an OPG x-ray. Some consultants do, I do, just to exclude any sort of odd underlying bony pathology um, and then they have a uh, their dentist can construct a bite splint as well um, and then lots of them use sort of mindfulness therapies and relaxation apps to try and stop them actively clenching and, and their bruxism um, if the disc has been displaced and then becomes irreducible and they're still quite symptomatic and I usually carry out a 10 minute pro, uh, procedure under, low, um, under a general anaesthetic so a temporomandibular joint arthrocentesis um, where I just sort of wash out the upper joint space with normal saline and that hydraulic force tends to sort of release help to release the disc it works um, in about 85% of cases and about 15% of cases is not helpful, won't really make any difference, but there's very minimal morbidity with it. Mm, and 85% is not a bad success rate for temporomandibular joints. So that's the first group of patients. The second group are ones with true degenerative disease. And you can see this on a, on a screening OPG. Um, and uh, sometimes we carry out to MR or CT 
to look at those joints in more detail. They can have lots of osteophyte formation and the whole joint can be um, uh, completely shot. Sometimes they need an open procedure, usually an interpositional temporalis graft, um, and that can be quite helpful. Some of them, unfortunately, um, sort of become quite end stage and we would um, consider a temporomandibular joint replacement in those patients. But it is quite a big under a temporomandibular joint replacement is actually um, um, the last thing that you would consider. It's quite a big, uh, sort of big operation, not without some morbidity. Um, they also respond very well to um, TMJ arthrocentesis, and that is usually able to kick the can down the road for a couple of years sometimes. Uh, and with those patients, again, we need a little bit of everything, a bit of uh, reassurance, a bit of explanation, a bit of physiotherapy, which I usually start after their TMJ arthrocentesis. And then they maintain this with their DIY jaw joint exercises. But there is no quick procedure TMJ. So we lost we lost the sound there again for a second, Sanjay. You're saying there's no definitive quick fix for TMJ dysfunction. No, because you cannot procedures which just rely on plicating the disc back have a poor success rate. The operation just doesn't work. Okay, thank you. I've got a couple of couple of questions that jumps in just now. Sonia says, "How long would you?" expect new onset TMJ pain in a young patient before needing intervention. So I, I think what, the, what, the, what that means, correct me if I'm wrong, Sonia, is um, how long would we continue with conservative management before referring on? Let me know if you think that's right, Sonia, what, what you meant. And Pooja says, what do we do in primary care to examine and whom do we refer to? And Pooja points out there are quite a few patients presenting with this complaint. Yes, yeah, so Sonia's question is how long do we leave it? And Pooja's question is well, how do we examine it and who do we refer it to? So, um, Sonia, I think in, in the um, um, younger group of patients have a much better um, uh, spontaneous resolution rate. So um, they're the ones to run that sort of undulating course and so they're the ones that you can probably they probably lots of them wouldn't come back after about three months um, and things are almost always better um, with that spontaneous resolution you can get some remodeling at the back of the, um, the disc it's when you get impingement on those retrodiscal tissues, that's where all the nerve fibers come in. And that's when patients come to see you is when the disc has actually gone so far forwards that it's impinging on those retrodiscal tissues. But in that young group of patients, it's probably still reducible. Everything takes a long time with TMJ and I would probably just get them to persevere for about three months before being 
um, sent in for us to have a look at. Um, the other group, the older group with proper degenerative disease, um, they tend to run that undulating phase, but they just sort of gradually get worse like most degenerative disorders. And I think in those cases, if you think it's of enough degree of severity and it's really interfering with their quality of life I would just send them I would just make the call and send them in because I don't think anything's going to make them better that graph is just going to gradually get worse and worse for them um, yeah so we're more than happy to sort of see see those patients I think are more worthy of an earlier referral rather than a late one but as I say there's no magic cutoff answer for that um steph what's the Paige's question was how do we examine these patients and let's pretend for a moment that we live in a time and a place where you can do what you want examination wise including looking in someone's open mouth but um <laughs> just live in that fantasy world so uh, how would we examine them okay so i would um usually palpate directly over the temporomandibular joint and then if you just have a sort of one or two fingers directly over the temporomandibular joint i examine the patient from behind with the um, neck in extension just so i can see down along the line of their dentition and i can that way i can feel for a click i can watch and look for deviation as well and um um usually the click is either going to be the clicking will be early or it'll be a sort of um mid opening click and there'll be a big loud clunk where it's sort of suddenly able to pop past the meniscus um i think it's probably hard to do much more because i don't know how you would start to interpret those lateral movements and um, um, sort of whether or not their occlusions changed. I don't think it's worthwhile doing that. I think you'd have uh, more bang for your buck on their history and how much it's actually impacting their quality of life and how much analgesics they're requiring and their um, and how um, how the history of their symptoms has been progressing rather than the examination. You can always check for mouth opening. Okay, thank you. Uh, Emma has asked, uh, Emma has asked, um, is it worth advising them of any exercises that they can do for TMJ dysfunction? Can they see them online? And then we have a question from Mark as well. Yeah, so um, there are there are lots of temporomandibular joint exercises. Um, there is a there's quite a good video from the East Grinstead uh, Hospital Group, which we um, sort of recommend to patients. And um, usually, once they've been to see the physiotherapist they sort of teach them their own sort of physiotherapy maintenance uh, sort of regimen of exercises, which involve lots of sort of um, uh, stretching, both sort of um, isometric and isotonic movements for their jaw. 
and it just helps them to maintain it. It probably keeps things up on their radar to be aware that they do have an underlying temporomandibular joint disorder. And so they're not, um, they need to probably avoid those hard and chewy foods. Those are the times when you can really put a lot of stress on, on the joint. And that's when patients will quite often say they've, they've been eating, um, uh, Know, some toffee toffee apple or something and uh, and it's uh, and it's suddenly gone there's another group i've mentioned though when you're talking about temporomandibular joints there's another group of patients who we call myofascial pain dysfunction so they it's quite often associated with some muscle tendon around the masseter and temporalis. In fact, going back to the examination, if you actually sort of palpate the insertion of the temporalis up the ramus of the mandible, patients will often have acute tenderness there and also where the masseter muscle comes into the, um, um, into the zygoma. Um, so for those patients, sometimes they've had it for a long, long time and I may sometimes elect to stick some, um, some botulinum toxin into the masita and temporalis. Probably works pretty well, I would say, in just helping to break the cycle. But you have to, you can't do it, probably needs to be done together with an arthrocentesis and the physio and wearing a bite splint. Thank you very much. Um, Mark's question is, uh, and this is particularly pertinent, thank you Mark, at the moment. Um, we are doing a lot of telephone work, um, as you know, in general practice. And Mark's question is, should we just be, be referring these guys to the dentists and letting them refer on to you? Um, yes, because the dentists should all they all have pretty good training. They know about occlusion and examining the jaw. And we get lots of referrals in from GDPs. And the real test is that they have actually been sort of managing these patients. And that's probably a good thing to do. They can often make them bite splints and um, see them for review. Um, and yeah, lots of them are very sensible about it. And then they send them in when they haven't got better, when they're at that sort of three, four month stage and it's refractory and still impinging on their quality of life. So I think that would be a good idea. Okay, thank you. I, I think probably many of us are perhaps GPs who don't tend to make best use of our dental colleagues' skills and experience. Um, so that's an, that's an interesting piece of advice. But Certainly what I'm going to take from what you said this morning is that the TMJ dysfunction is probably going to make its way onto my list of conditions where I'm going to explore the psychology of it very carefully, um, like I would do with IBS, for example. It sounds like these, this is, a, at least in the young patients, a, an anxiety or tension-related problem in a, in a lot, lot of them. Um, it's, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, with um, you know, TMJ classically gets worse during um, exam time or periods of stress for that group of patients, and um, they quite often have IBS or lower back pain 
uh, all three of them is the classic sort of stress-related triad. Okay. Thank you very much. Does anybody have anything else they want to ask about clicky jaws? That's obviously provoked <laughs> a lot of interest because it, it, it is something we see a lot of and, and yeah, it, it's not uh, my favourite consultation anyway, but I'll feel a lot better about it now. Um, what was next? Um, yeah, there were a couple of questions which I sort of blended into one. Abnormal facial movements slash facial weakness. When do we worry about stroke versus Bell's palsy? Uh, that was several questions combined, sorry. But could you talk to us please about droopy faces and abnormal looking faces? I think they need to, I think they would need to come in. I think if you have a facial weakness, that is a um, focal neurology, you know, and whether it's in a stroke, obviously you're looking at upper motor neuron and the differentiator is the forehead uh, due to the bicortical innervation of uh, frontalis. Um, so if it's lower motor neuron, then um, and there's no um, forehead sparing, then it's much more likely to be a Bell's palsy. Um, they need to um, for the unresolved Bell's. They they come in um, lots of them via the face place. Now they're referred directly in to the face place at Southampton, where the specialist uh, facial uh, physiotherapy team uh, plug them into the pathway and then they would be um, um, uh, seen by Seb Thomas leads on um, that group of patients for the um, uh, Bell's palsy. I sort of usually only come in quite late on down the line when they've had an unresolved Bell's palsy um, and uh, are seeking some sort of facial paralysis surgery when we offer, you know, um, um, static suspensions for brow lifts, lower eyelid slings, or uh, fasciolata static slings for the face, which do make a very significant function and uh, eating and their quality of life and their appearance for the severe palsies. I think the hardest group of patients to sort out for me, and I don't really feel that I can do very much, are the patients who have um, a really good recovery, but still have facial asymmetry. Um, but they're not really, there's very little you can do for them. They have some synkinesis, and we run a, a sort of facial botulinum toxin clinic where they can have targeted um, administration of, um, sort of Botox but again that's sort of um, um, coordinated by the face place and they would send those patients on to me because they have very detailed video assessments um, and histories taken from them and then they're sent on to me to see whether Botox is a possibility or whether or not they need surgery. And I was going to say thank you. That's all. That's all. Um, Specialist. Question from Mark on this, and then we'll go back to Julia's question uh, prior to that. So Mark saying a German patient once told me that all Bell's patients would be seen by facial on uh, facial physios at onset. Should we be sending more Bell's to the face space? That's not what it was called, is it? Face place. Face place. Face place. Yeah. Should we be sending more Bell's to face place? Um. 
I think you should. I think they they run an amazing service and their um, patients feel really happy once they find the face place. They feel incredibly supported. And you know what that group of specialist physiotherapists offer? They offer about 30% of their work, I think, is counselling. So they offer a lot of psychological and emotional support for this group of patients. And they, and they all, you know, they rave about it. They all walk out feeling uh, much better about themselves, even if it's something that, um, where there's very little that can be done. So I think it is a really good idea. Thank you. I hope but that helps Mark. Standard, I think if it's um, standard practice in Germany, surely that's what we should be aspiring to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now going back to, Julia has two questions. One, what about clicky jaws in children? And, and then she wanted to move into salivary stones and submandibular facial swelling, please. So yeah. clicky jaws in kids or Julia? <laughs> Clicky jaws in kids, so usually the age onset of about sort of um, 12 and onwards. Uh, again, it's most likely to be reducible meniscal displacement. There will be a further, so that, that group I don't think you need to be too concerned about. There is, uh, there are a small group of kids who um, are juvenile rheumatoid arthritis but everyone knows about them everyone knows about them because they've, they've they've presented with with other symptoms beforehand so we would usually get that group of patients referred to us via the rheumatology department or peds but um i think in primary care most kids with clicky joints it's almost always a reversible meniscal displacement and they've got so much time for their remodeling and recapture to happen that really um i just sort of give them the chat and um um and they're pretty reassured i don't really i can't really remember many kids who've been refractory and have have gone on to require anything at all. Would you be happy to see them for such a uh, reassuring chat? No, absolutely. I think I think it. You know, uh, between primary care and secondary care, sometimes that group do need the old pincer movement because um, uh, it can be very worrying for the kid and for the parents as well. So. Um, um, it probably does need need a bit of both, I think. So yeah, we're more than happy to see them. There aren't that many, actually. I haven't seen that many, or there might be a lot, and they haven't been sent in because you've been dealing with them so well. But um, um, it shouldn't form a large subpopulation of TMJ dysfunction. Thank you, Sajara. Where we've got, we've got 10 minutes um, before the official end of the session, where we started a little bit late with the various techie issues. But uh, we have a general question from Julia, and this also feeds into another couple of questions that have been pre-submitted. Basic, your, your basic fat faces, um, which 
uh, we do see a lot of. Um, I don't know about the rest of the, the GPs on the, on the chat here, but a lot of my patients seem to believe that I must be a dentist because I'm a doctor and a doctor is like a dentist only better. So I must be able to deal with all things dental, which of course not accurate at all um, but we are all often faced with that situation where a patient's on the phone saying it's really painful it's you know I've got an abscess I need antibiotics have you any advice for us particularly in this time of doing a lot down the phone as mm. to how to manage people with fat faces uh, query dental abscesses and how to avoid that nightmarish scenario of somebody going on to develop a horrible deep space infection and they do very badly sometimes, don't they? So anyway, what are your thoughts? Um, so we see a massive number of odontogenic deep neck space infections. Um, the whole group of patients have almost always been given several courses of antibiotics. The problem is by, by everyone. Um, the problem is with odontogenic antibiotics are not the preventive treatment and it doesn't seem to settle it very well at all um, and a large proportion of these will just grumble and continue because you haven't actually got rid or dealt with the root cause of the problem which is the dead space within the pulp the root canal and pulp chambers of the of the tooth that's gone bad um, and so they need extraction of the tooth or endodontic or root canal therapy or um, some sort of surgical intervention or when they come and see us we'll put the tooth in the bin and and stick a big drain in under a general anesthetic um, so no none of that's ideal and I think uh, they definitely need to seek um, seek urgent dental treatment to, to sort that out otherwise they'll just bounce back and sometimes quite soon if they're just treated with antibiotics that is almost never the definitive treatment for odontogenic infections and you know we've been seeing a huge huge number they can get sick quite quickly um, especially ones which extend into the floor of the mouth you've heard of your classic Ludwig so you know we do a few every week um, um, who, if we don't get to them quickly, they end up needing a tracheostomy and then drainage. But not uncommon at all. So as, as GPs, would we be best placed to, particularly difficult, obviously, if we can't see people or we're not, not seeing quite as many people at the moment, would we be best placed just talking to a patient who thinks they've got a dental abscess and saying, go to a dentist because it's not as, always as easy as that or no especially during like during during lockdown it's just been impossible for anyone to get any appointments and there's a massive backlog and um, you know i don't know everyone's stuck between rock and a hard place so it's awful so they've all been phoning up the um their gps you know but what what else can you do apart from tell them um I, uh, that they need to seek urgent dental treatment and um, uh, and put them on antibiotics. You know, you put them on amoxicillin and metronidine 
cortisol and then send them back out <laughs> and wish them the best of luck in trying to access some sort of mental care. I think Mark, Mark's and then just, the ones that fail to do that and get worse. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the problem. Mark, Mark just made the point, you know, sadly, access to dental care is very difficult. And, and, uh, and often, even if uh, patients do manage to make their way there, they, they often seem to come out armed with yet more antibiotics. So uh, I suppose you know, we, don't, we don't want to come across as the... Um, the overly anxious GP in the community who's asking Max Fax to see all these people. But as you say, some of them get really sick because they haven't been properly treated. So would, would your juniors be willing to accept um, a referral under these sorts of circumstances? If we you know, sort of said this guy's had three courses of antibiotics, he's got a temperature, he's a bit tachycardic, big fat face. Yeah, absolutely. That's our bread and butter. So they would, they would, they would take, take those patients without um, any problem at all. That, that is their bread and butter. They would see all of those. And they would be admitted, IV antibiotics, nil by mouth, and put on, a, on the C-pod list for a general anaesthetic incision and drainage. Okay. There you go. That's reassuring to know that, you know, that, that is an option that's open to us. Um, thank you very much. Does anyone have anything else on... On this area, we have a question from Laura um, that's popped up here. Sanjay, you're nearly finished. You're doing very well, keeping going with all these that's questions. Okay. No, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry about the tech issues, but I'm glad it's working now. I've I change as I said. You know, as soon as you get rid of the uh, the hospital IT, take it out of the equation. It's all fine. <laughs> So here's a question from Laura. Do you go early for burning tongue syndrome or do you tend to promote conservative management such as trigger avoidance? I guess I'm asking if treatment with, for example, a tricyclic antidepressant helps the symptoms resolve or are we better avoiding them and all the side effects they bring? Um, yes, really good question. I syndrome um, see lots of patients with burning tongue syndrome I think for lots of them it is about sort of having that reassurance that there is nothing else underlying it we don't really understand burning tongue syndrome very well at all and usually patients are referred in after having a, a sort of a batch of blood tests and exclude sort of anemias and hematinic deficiencies but ultimately you know, it's usually in the in the history, and uh, uh, and there's there's nothing to find on examination. Um, that group of patients, I probably traditionally it was tricyclics. I've probably had a little bit more success with SSRIs, I would say, um, than tricyclics, and I suppose they are slightly cleaner. Um, in terms of uh, pharmaceutical agents, so I would probably use those. Okay, thank you. Does that, does that help answer your question, Laura? See what she said. Okay, fantastic. So, burning tongue syndrome. Anybody have any questions? Uh, oh, Mark said, any preference of SSRI? I'm by no means the SSRI expert, but the uh, the uh, the research is based on escitalopram, 
Yeah. 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 You can tell I'm not even okay. totally sure how to pronounce it, let alone um, <laughs> to use it. Again, it's a very small group of patients. Most patients with burning tongue um, are quite happy to just accept the symptoms. They've usually been living with them for quite a while. Um, and then a small group um, feel that it's worthwhile them trying a um, tablet for it. And for that group, I probably use escitalopram. Thank you, Sanjay. For what it's worth, I think you pronounced escitalopram beautifully. Um, I, on the other hand, have learned that I've been saying masita wrong all of these years. I was So we are getting very close to the end of our planned hour-long session. Has anybody got anything else to ask Sanjay before he scampers back into theatre? W Wong's question, who can refer to face place? Uh, all of you can refer to face place. Um, but how do we do that? Oh, you can just send it to the face place, Southampton Hospital, Neurosurgery Department. It's on uh, level A in the neurosurgical block. Okay, and uh, Bianca's asking, can, can um, ANPs refer to face place? Advanced nurse practitioners? Or does yeah, to be absolutely. Yeah. And Bianca's saying, is it just an email referral or, or is there a form or something? We do love a form, you know, GPs. Um, if it's a letter, that's fine. So if you go We're on to sure their, if you go on to the face place website, um, that is a really good source of knowledge for patients as well um, and then it's got the referral details on there on their um, the face place Southampton Hospital website um, it's okay. under I think it's under Wessex Facial Nerve Centre and Mark's ahead of you Mark's already put in the chat there uhs.wessexfnc at nhs.net thank you Mark um, it's one o'clock. Time flies when you're having fun. Does uh, anybody have anything else that they want to ask Sanjay? I think you're off the hook, Sanjay. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. Thank you. And asked to say that the next Wessex LMC's RC, RCPP hour-long webinar is on the 11th of November, 9 to 10 in the morning, so on learning disability and uh, special um, mention of Down syndrome. So please put that in the diary, 9th of no 11th of November, 9 to 10 in the morning. Um, and yes, thank you very much for coming along. I know how busy you are and uh, go back to your patient now. Um, and Pooja uh, is asking for the face place referral link again. Yes, yeah, in the it's in the chat, and we will make sure that that's circulated to all the delegates. Pooja, thanks very much. So um, thank you, and uh, thank you very much, Mr. Sharma. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and um, thank, thank you, you. For, for coming. Thanks for listening. Thank bye bye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. <laughs>